You get to that age where the worst thing in the world when you're a preteen or teenager is to be different. And with PKU, you are different. <laughs> For many people who have PKU are limited to uh, eating about four or five grams of protein a day. And just to put that in perspective, uh, one slice of bread is about four or five grams of protein. Just feeling this profound sense of gratitude for the life that I have through no action of my own. There are a host of other decisions that were made before I was born that allowed me to live the life that I have. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Newborn screening, it's been called the greatest success story in public health in the 20th century but people still don't really know about it. You hear, hey, there's a problem, and you don't hear anything else. Everyone in the United States is affected by newborn screening because every baby is tested. Kevin Alexander is a professional videographer who works for a production company called CRM Studios. He also has an inherited metabolic condition, PKU. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to talk with me. I appreciate the invite very much. So you have an inherited metabolic condition called... Phenylketonuria. <laughs> yes. PKU. So what is PKU and what is the significance of a diagnosis of PKU? So uh, PKU, um, it's, it stands for phenylketonuria, as you said. And what's funny is, as long as I can remember, I've known how to spell that word. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up with PKU, it's kind of, you know, kind of joke that you always kind of get a uh, crash course in genetics at a very young age. Um, but uh, PKU is a rare metabolic condition that is uh, caused by a, uh, an enzyme in the liver that does not function quite like it should, so it has difficulty processing an amino acid called phenylalanine. And uh, the, long, the short version of it is that if that amino acid builds up within the body, then it can cause severe uh, problems uh, such as intellectual disability or you know, lifelong institutionalization so long as it's not diagnosed, you know, right at birth and the child is put on treatment. If, uh, you know, every baby in the United States, virtually every baby in the United States, plus most developed countries in the world, are screened for PKU through newborn screening, as well as a host of other metabolic conditions and other rare disorders. And because of that newborn screening diagnosis, um, when, when parents get the notification that your child has PKU, they're immediately put in contact with a metabolic uh, doctor and dietitian, a team to help them transition into this new lifestyle because it is a different lifestyle because the, the, the treatment currently for PKU is a low protein diet. Um, so someone with PKU, uh, you know, can, cannot eat meat, cannot eat dairy. Um, you know, generally speaking, and, and PKU is kind of like a, has a range of severity, if you will. Uh, the most, uh, probably the most Severe cases or many people who have PKU are limited to uh, eating about four or five grams of protein a day. And just to put that in perspective, uh, one slice of bread is about four or five grams of protein a day. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, math involved in, as far as, you know, severely restricting the amount of protein 
that uh, someone with PKU uh, can actually get into their system. So there are uh, low-protein um, modified foods that most uh, many people with PKU have to consume because they can't eat regular bread, they can't eat regular pasta. Um, and then there's also a metabolic formula, or I call it my medical drink, um, that gives me all of the nutrients that I would get through natural foods. I get those through the, uh, the metabolic formula. Um, I think in the past few years, protein, high protein diets have sort of been a faddish popular thing. And people often think of good sources of protein like meat, but you're pointing out that even something like bread that most of us don't think of as containing protein contains protein and a lot of other foods that we don't think of classically as high protein foods actually do contain a lot of protein, right? Correct. So uh, to give you an example, um, you know, uh, it's not just the foods you typically think of, like you said, like meat or dairy, which are high in protein. And, um, you know, most people with PKU cannot tolerate that at all. Um, there are some, including myself, who can eat higher amounts of protein. And I'll explain why, because it's, you know, like I said, with PKU, there's a range of different diagnoses and there's different in the last, I would say, 10 years or so. There's a, a, a range of new treatment options that are just starting to become available that some people with PKU respond to, myself included, but many people still don't, unfortunately. Um, but like you said, it's not just the normal foods like meat, dairy products, nuts, uh, things that, that we think of that are high in protein, but also, like I said, for someone who's on four or five grams of protein a day, well, a large order of french fries at McDonald's is about six grams of protein. So those, those would be high. So in, in the most severe cases, we're talking about, you know, um, having to weigh and measure all of the food that you intake for the day, um, counting the number of pretzels or counting the number of French fries that you have to eat. And, you know, it's a, you know, significant challenge um, for parents of young children because, um, you know, in my line of work in video production, I've been fortunate to produce different videos uh, for the PK community. And I've interviewed a numerous, numerous parents. And, you know, it's just, it's a quite a challenge because before their child was diagnosed with this, they did, they had never heard of PKU. It's just not something that's commonly known. Yeah. And then they go through this dramatic life change to where now they have to severely, you know, very closely watch, you know, how many pretzels their child eats, because if they eat too much, then that can throw their, their intake off for the day. Yeah. And at what point were you diagnosed with PKU and what led to that diagnosis? Did that happen for you with newborn screening or at a different point? It, it did happen for me through newborn screening. Um, I, my parents learned that I was uh, diagnosed with PKU when I was nine days old. And I was, you know, immediately uh, put on uh, the low protein diet um, and put in contact with a metabolic doctor and dietitian team at Tulane Medical University in New Orleans. Um, and they're, they have been my metabolic team for my entire life. Uh, you know, the doc, some of the doctors and dietitians have changed over the years, but my entire life I've had to make the five and a half, six hour drive from Shreveport, Louisiana to New Orleans uh, every so often to uh, go to clinic. And uh, it's, uh, you know, most people with PKU can tell you that the relationship between a patient or family member of someone with PKU and their metabolic doctor or dietitian it is unlike any other relationship you might have with any other medical professional because it's much, much more intimate. You get to know each other. Um, they are, my team at Tulane is, they're my biggest advocates. They're always watching out for me. Um, and they're, they're my greatest cheerleaders, I think, in, the, uh, in my lifestyle with PKU. And your 
team at Tulane. Does that consist of a metabolic geneticist, a dietitian, and also a genetic counselor? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the, the individuals that I have the most contact with myself is there is a, uh, my, my genetic doctor, Dr. Hans Anderson, and then also there's a team of um, uh, metabolic dietitians uh, and genetic counselors, and, and uh, they're the ones that I keep the most contact with, um, you know, just communicating uh, how I'm doing, you know, and uh, submitting uh, my blood samples. Uh, it's another thing that people with PK have to do. Um, there is a the only method to detect how we are doing with our PKU lifestyle is to take a blood sample and send it to the lab and they run that to examine the blood for the amount of phenylalanine that's present in the bloodstream and uh, the results kind of give us a guideline on how we're doing and uh, you know my metabolic team they're the people that I stay in contact with so that if I give them a sample and my levels are too high or too low even which can happen um, they're able to tell me and we make some modifications to my diet um, as I mentioned before, there are some relatively new uh, therapies and treatments for PKU, uh, some different medications that some of us uh, are able to respond to. And I am on one of those right now, and I've been on it for the last uh, seven or eight years, and it has dramatically changed my lifestyle. And because of that, I haven't really had problems with my levels getting too high or too low even. Oh, that's great. What did, what have your parents told you about when they first learned that you had PKU? You said you were diagnosed when you were nine days old. Um, do you know how they remember that experience and learning that and what they were told at that point that a diagnosis of PKU would mean for your life? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I remember that they told me that they were both at work that day and my grandmother was actually taking care of me that day. And she was the one who was at home when the uh, pediatrician called to give her the news. And, um, you know, he didn't know much about it. And he said this is the first time he's ever seen a case of this in his career. But he did the right thing, which was consult some, you know, medical journals and some other information to be able to tell my grandmother, look, it's going to be fine. You know, everything I see, there's a treatment available. You just have to follow this diet and it's all going to be okay. And uh, I remember, you know, after that, my earliest memories, um, really, some of my earliest memories are traveling with my parents down to New Orleans to go to a PKU clinic. We would leave, and my appointments, we would leave on a Thursday night, and we'd drive down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to spend the night. The next morning, we'd drive into New Orleans, and I would have my PKU clinic, and then we'd have a weekend in New Orleans. And so, um, because of that, you know, it's kind of like every few months, I got to have a trip to New Orleans, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. At what point in your childhood did you realize that you had PKU and what did that mean to you? I'm sure initially it just seemed very normal to you to have to go for these appointments um, occasionally. And then at a certain point, you probably realized that your friends were not necessarily having the same sort of experiences of often having to go to the doctor. You know, I don't ever remember just having this one moment where I realized that I was different from other kids or um, it just it was normal to me. And I knew that other kids didn't have to do this. But it wasn't until I was a little bit, you know, older, middle school, high school, that I really started kind of feeling the peer pressure of knowing, hey, I'm different than everyone else. Um, but early on, you know, it was just, you know, I, as long as I can remember, I've understood what PKU was. I've understood that there are certain foods that I could not eat and, um, and that I needed to stay away from them. And I never felt the pressure to, like, go off of my diet and, you know, I will clarify all this by saying in, when I was growing up in the early 1980s, 
mid-1980s, um, their understanding of PKU at the time was different than it is today. And there were thoughts that, hey, maybe as the child grows up and develops into adulthood, and as the brain develops, that the child can then, as they progress into an adult, get off of the low-protein diet and eat a more normal diet. And that was always in the back of my mind when I was growing up thinking that might be possible and I didn't learn until I was an adult that their understanding of that had changed and their new mantra if you will is diet for life but growing up thinking that someday I might be able to go off diet I did try to experiment with certain foods just like oh do I like this do I like this do I like this and it was never something that I made part of my you know lifestyle if you will but when I was a teenager I, I was like hey in a few years I might be able to eat chicken let me try and see what it likes and uh, thankfully, I did not ever make that a part of my diet, and I did not go off diet as other people that I know my age and a little bit older did mm -hmm. because of that lack of understanding of PKU at the time. Right. But it did have some, you know, I, I could tell that in retrospect, I wish I had not done that because now I know what some of those foods taste like. Whereas I don't know what steak tastes like because I've never had a steak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I have one older brother. He's nine years older than me. Okay, so he does not have PKU. Correct, correct. And I, I can't remember if, um, you know, PKU is recessive, so both parents have to have the gene, have to be a carrier in order to pass it on. And I don't even remember if he is a carrier or not. Yeah. And you mentioned that you didn't really feel the social difference in having PKU until middle school or high school. What was that like for you once once you got a little bit older? Yeah, it, was, it was hard. It was really hard um, because... You get to that age where the worst thing in the world when you're a preteen or teenager is to be different. And with PKU, you are different. <laughs> and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's unavoidable because the, one of the most social things that we do is go eat with our friends. And when you have PKU and you can't do that, or if you can do that and you try to plan, you try to bring your own food or you try to ask this restaurant, hey, I brought this low protein pasta can you cook it for me it, that no matter what it is you're going to be the person that is going to be like saying to the waiter hey uh, you need to spend a few extra minutes with me <laughs> and so it's just yeah. you know in, in the best of scenarios even when you have friends around you who are supportive it's still a little bit of a pain because you're like this is not it's it's a it feels like a chore to to go out to eat for most people with pku um you know and then just for me personally in middle school and high school it was it was pretty tough because um, there were, I had a, I had a core group of friends who were really understanding and they were great, but you know, as, as it is in middle school and high school, there were a lot of other people who didn't really get it and didn't really understand. And I vividly remember being in middle school and one kid said, I think you just completely made this up. And I thought, do you, how much of an imagination do you think I have? If you think I can make up the word phenylketonuria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you are now 37 years old. You'll be almost 38 by the time we air this episode. How does having PKU impact your social life as an adult now? I know you, you mentioned that you can um, eat some, some foods or you respond to certain medications um, that not everyone with PKU does. So that gives you a little more freedom. Yes. So I, do res I am a, a responder to some of the newer medications available for PKU. And my tolerance as a child was always, and even as an adult, was always a little bit higher than other kids with PKU, you know, where most people could maybe have about four, five, maybe eight grams of protein a day. As an adult, my tolerance was about 20 grams of protein a day, which meant it was easier for me even then because there were other foods that other people, you know, couldn't eat at all that I could eat in moderation, like bread and maybe a little bit of pasta. 
Um, you know, if I if my levels ever went over, it wasn't because I was going out and eat, eating meat all the time. It was because I was eating too much pasta. Mm -hmm. And um, but since I respond to this medication, I've had a huge response to it to the point now I'm on an almost unrestricted diet, not completely unrestricted. My I can tolerate about 50, 60 grams of protein a day. Um, so it's much more of a normal, complete diet for me. Um, I can eat dairy and nuts and some other things like that, but still a basic vegetarian or vegan diet. No, uh, no animal products, no meat, no chicken, anything like that. So it, it, it is a lot easier for me these days. When, as far as going out and eating or whatever, um, my wife also has some medical conditions herself. She has celiac disease and she kind of is open about that. And so she has to eat a very strict gluten-free diet. And because of that, we just actually prefer cooking at home a lot because it's a lot easier for us to be able to control aspects of her meals at home rather than going out to restaurants. From a social perspective though, um, things kind of changed for me in 2011 when I, you know, being a professional videographer for years, I had wanted to do some sort of video project related to PKU to feel like I was giving back my professional skills and helping the PK community in some way. And in 2011, I had time to do that. Uh, finally, I've, I've worked in TV news for a long time. And at that point was not in the news business anymore. So I had time to do my own side projects. And I, I made this one video called uh, My PKU Life, which was simply me sharing my story of living with PKU. And I posted it on YouTube and I thought, hey, maybe someone will see this. <laughs> and then like right before Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving in 2011, in fact, I think it was the morning of Thanksgiving, I woke up and checked my email and I, I had sent the video to my doctor at Tulane. And he sent me back an encouraging message and said, Kevin, I'm sending this on to my colleagues in across the country. And I was like, oh, wow. And then like the next, by the next day, the video had like spiked up a number of views and then it just kind of took off from there. And then just it for the next, you know, um, couple of months, the video was just being shared like crazy. And I thought, oh, wow, I didn't, I did not expect this at all. And I'm, I'm a videographer. I'm used to being behind the camera, not in front of the camera. So it was, it was just a different experience for me. And, um, I started connecting with people and got it, started getting invitations to speak at newborn screening conferences or PKU conferences. And, um, and that led to other opportunities, uh, even professionally of doing certain video projects. Um, and, at that point, I think for me, my life kind of changed at that point because I grew up and until about that time, didn't really know anyone else in the PK community. The first person I met and um, who was really besides my doctor and my dietitians uh, was a family in South Louisiana who I actually interviewed in my that video, My PKU Life. And I'd met them just a few years before at clinic, just happened to sit in there and just struck up a conversation with them. So for my, about my first 30 years, I did not know anyone else with PKU. I was isolated from the PKU community. And then suddenly after this video started getting shared, I thought I'm going to start talking about PKU more on Facebook. And so I started, you know, connecting with people on my profile, I even created a PKU Facebook page. And since then, you know, my support system is totally different. You know, I've been able to meet people both online and in person across the world. And, um, you know, it's in these days when there's a lot of concerns about social media and how social media is being used in a bad way, um, it's nice to know that, that it can, it's a tool like any other, and it can be used for good as well. And that's one of the reasons why I stay on social media, because it's been a huge part of my PKU experience and making friendships across the world. Right, because PKU's not incredibly rare, but rare enough that, you know, you have very little opportunity for meeting 
other people with PKU just um, without social media, right? Yeah, so a good statistic is I think it's about 16,500 PKU, uh, people with PKU in the United States. Yeah, okay. And so, um, you know, it's one of those things where there's just, you know, unless you live in a large metropolitan area, there's a good chance there may not be anybody around you with PKU. Mm-hmm. I know in the, uh, in the documentary film, My PKU Life, um, that I watched, and we'll include a link in the show notes, you really drew a contrast between the potential for an individual with PKU who stays on diet, which is the potential that any other individual has, and then the outcome for individuals with PKU who are not on diet. And you showed some people who were at, uh, I think, a long-term care center um, with untreated PKU. Uh, and I think one line from the documentary, you said, had I not been diagnosed, had I not always been on diet, had I not always been on my formula, it is undeniable that I would have been in an institution that I would have become mentally retarded. And I wonder now, I, th- I think that you got that, um, that was a clip just from another YouTube video. Is that right? You didn't actually visit that center? That's correct. I, I had made a connection with a dietitian in California. Um, and I think it was a connection I made through my dietitian who was friends with her. And when I told my dietitians or told them what I was working on and I asked for permission to use that video, they granted it without, without a doubt. And, um, yeah, to me, it's, you know, I'm a videographer. Um, I, what I do for a living is I shoot and I edit video images. So it has a profound, anything video has a profound impact on me, you know? Um, and so watching that video, I just, I felt like I was right there. I felt like I was you know, in that home. And then I, all I could do is imagine that, you know, that, that could be me. And I'm not saying that people who are in institutional, you know, institutions like that with P- undiagnosed PKU, I, it's not that I'm having pity on them as if, well, their life somehow is less than mine because they weren't diagnosed and I was, but I just, I, I had this profound sense of being able to identify with them and, and just feeling this profound sense of gratitude for the life that I have through no action of my own. You know, there are a host of other decisions that were made before I was born that allowed me to live the life that I have through people who dedicated their lives to discovering PKU, to discovering the, uh, the dietary treatment for PKU, for discovering, you know, the uh, newborn screening blood spot test. And I just, I've been very privileged in my life to be able to meet some of the family members of those people. And one of them, I'm pretty good friends with now the with the daughter of um, Dr. Guthrie who discovered the newborn screening test and met her through my PKU advocacy and it's just it's it just makes me reflect and think about if it weren't for the work of her father the newborn screening test as it exists doesn't you know wouldn't wouldn't exist and I just feel a profound sense of gratitude for that and I think the, the newborn screening test, sometimes doctors even refer to it as the PKU test, just because that's a really classic condition and sort of a case in point of a, a condition where with early the detection, there can be really good outcomes. But what would you say to people? I know some some parents, you know, aren't initially aware that these blood spots are being taken and they're babies or child's DNA is being stored and have been really concerned about this. How do you feel about those privacy concerns that some pa- uh, parents have? I definitely understand the natural inclination to be concerned, but I think the root of it goes back to the lack of understanding or awareness that newborn screening even exists. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was a parent and I do nothing about PKU and suddenly I learn 
that in, and my child's not even, you know, wasn't even affected by newborn screening, but I find out, wait, they're taking these blood spots and wait, they're storing them without a sense of context to the reasons why I could understand the concern, which is why I'm a huge believer that newborn screening, it's been called the greatest um, success story in public health in the 20th century, but people still don't really know about it. You know, the average mm -hmm. person, you know, doesn't know about PKU, I mean, doesn't know about newborn screening the same way that they know about other issues that people face when a woman is pregnant, whether it's, you know, going to Lamaze classes or just the general process or whatever, there's still not a widespread understanding of newborn screening as a practice. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is and what ideas do you have for how that could be something that people are more aware of than they are currently? You know, I don't, I don't know why it is, to be honest with you. It's, it's, I know that there have been efforts made, especially in the last you know few years. When I, since I've been in, kind of involved and connected with the newborn screening community, I've seen a lot of efforts of people to try to um, raise public awareness. And I think anything anyone any you know anything someone can do or those organizations can do to raise the awareness of newborn screening, I think, is a wonderful thing. As far as why it hasn't received the attention it deserves, honestly, that's not an answer that I have, like, it's not something I have a good answer for. It's, it's something that I think is, to be honest with you, it kind of makes me a little upset because I know in the age that we live in, there's so much more understanding about medical situations and medic, you know, the understanding of people who are going through, like, like I said, issues with, you know, celiac disease, like my wife has, or, um, other conditions, people just understand and have a, oh, okay, that person has to do this, or okay, they have to do that. Or they understand that when you're going through a medical, uh, situation, you need time off of work or you need, there's an understanding of those things. But for some reason, there's not an understanding when it relates to newborn screening and there's not a sense of urgency, I don't think, in some medical professionals to help make sure that everybody understands what it is. And I'm a big believer that everybody should know what it is because if you're a parent and your child gets diagnosed with any of the conditions detected through newborn screening, if you've never heard of newborn screening, then just the barrier of having to wait, you, you hear, hey, there's a problem and you don't hear anything else. You know, you, you, all you hear is there's something wrong with my child. Oh gosh. And you, you just don't hear anything else in the conversation. And so then the medical professionals have to go back and explain, well, we did this test. And if I believe that if that was an understanding of like parents knew that, Hey, after the child's been born, there will be this test to make sure that there's not any problems. It's very rare that things do, but you need to be aware of it going in so that you're not shocked and not surprised when that, you know, that phone call comes in and they say, hey, we did this test. Yeah. I know when I see patients for prenatal counseling or preconceptual counseling, I'll always bring up newborn screening and include a, men a brief mention of newborn screening in a consult note, but I still feel like patients are dealing with so many different issues and so many that are hypothetical. And then if uh, a mother who's just given birth is told something briefly by a nurse in a hospital, it's like it's usually not the best time. <laughs> right. Or they're not right. really paying attention. <laughs> Well, to give you a good example, um, I've been uh, on Facebook. I've connected with uh, someone in Baton Rouge who recently found out her child was, new, you know, diagnosed with PKU, and she said, you know, she's she's having a you know a, you know a hard time kind of thinking through and processing what is this going to mean for the future because she's in the early stages of it, 
and um, and she told you know she messaged me the other day and said the nurses keep coming through and say wow it's just so weird I've just never seen one of these cases in my entire career and everybody's saying that one after the other and after the other and she's like that's not helping <laughs> I get it for you that <laughs> yeah. this is you know you've never seen this case before but that nurse may go off and never see another case like that again in his or her career and whereas this mother is going to be dealing with this for the rest of her life right and how did she find you on Facebook? Uh, you know, it, again, it's a, there's a great um, PKU support system on Facebook. We've got uh, a lot of support groups, um, you know, that are created so that anybody in the PKU community can just kind of join and, you know, um, ask questions, you know, ask for advice, ask for emotional support, whatever it is. And I just happened to be in the group one day chatting and I looked up and saw that, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, it's a lot of um, new parents sometimes that will come that will find these groups and it's good because they're really worried and for them to be able to connect with people who are a little bit further down the road than them and say look it's going to be okay I know it's scarier right now I know that it's um, you know this is a lot to take in we just take it one step at a time and it's going to be okay I think that's a way that you know that Facebook can be in uh, in any social media can be used for good it just I've just happened to notice that there's a lot of people specifically on Facebook in the PK community. Yeah. So you in, in doing the documentary, My PKU Life, it sounds like that's something you just kind of thought of on your own and put out there. And then the success of that documentary got you more interested and motivated in doing more similar projects. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And the, the, your current employer, CRM Studios, the production company, I know you said before the interview that they've been especially supportive of your PKU advocacy efforts, and you've even produced a few projects for the National PKU Alliance with them. Yeah. How long have you been working there, and how did those projects come about? Did they know that you had PKU when they hired you? Had you already put out that My PKU Life video, or was that something that you did afterward? Yeah, that, yeah it was um, by the time that I... Um came to work at CRM Studios, I had spent a few years, about three years or so, uh, as a freelancer. Um, and I had taken the opportunity after kind of the success of my PKU life, I was connected with, um, besides some of the speaking opportunities that I was able to get, um, I also was connected with other people in that were kind of in the rare disease or the newborn screening or PK communities as far as doing professional work with them, doing professional videos for them. And so I had the opportunity to do that over a few years um, and uh, at the same time started working with the National PKU Alliance on some various video projects in my, in my spare time. And so when the opportunity came for me to come to CRM Studios, I was very open with my boss about it. You know, some of the, the material that I had on my demo reel was videos that I had produced uh, for the PK community and, um, and was open with them and told them like, look, you know, this particular project right here is near and dear to my heart. It's a uh, project called the Lifting the Limits for PKU campaign. It's a series of fundraisers held across the country and we produce uh, some videos for each event so that, um, you know, kind of help people who've never heard of PKU understand from a, an emotional connection what PKU is and why it's important for them to give to, you know, research for PKU. And my boss was incredibly supportive and um, he understood that the, some of those projects were things that I might want to do in my free time. And, uh, and when I was hired, I would even had been um, previously uh, set to go on a trip to Berlin, Germany for a European uh, PKU conference. And he was incredibly supportive of the whole thing. And, um, and then that just kind of developed in the last few years where every now and then I might, you know, um, 
on the side do one of these uh, videos for uh, the lifting the limits uh, every couple of, you know a couple of months and um, a couple times a year and then the opportunity came uh, earlier this year to do a video uh, advocating for what's called the Medical Nutrition Equity Act. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a project that I was fortunate to be able to work on through my work at CRM Studios. And, you know, my coworkers who understand have heard me talk about PKU to have them on the project and then to really speak with other people who have PKU. I, I think they, even though they understood PKU before, it, it became a little bit more concrete for them, which I think was good. But um, the the Medical Nutrition Equity Act is something that, um, you know, it's in the United States, there is a, uh, there is a lack of consistency as far as access to the medical treatment that we need in the PKU community. So like I said, besides the low protein diet, one of the other staples of living with PKU is this medical formula, or I call it my medical drink, uh, which is the protein that, you know, a, a modified protein drink that we can have that doesn't have the harmful amino acid for us, but mm. it's incredibly expensive. And so, um, but as it stands right now, there's many states where it's not, um, it, people can't access it. You know, they, they can't, it's not required to be covered by private insurance. And um, so in like in the state of Louisiana, personally, I'm able to get it on my insurance and the state of Louisiana will even provide it for those families who can't get it through private insurance. But if you go, you know, to another state, whether it's Florida or Georgia or, or Alabama, they, they might have completely different laws. And uh, in some cases, I have friends who cannot get it uh, through insurance, and some of them don't have the financial means to, to get it. Uh, others are basically paying their rent twice because they can afford it. It's just very taxing for them. So the Medical Nutrition Equity Act is a bill in front of Congress right now uh, that aims to require private insurance companies to cover the medically necessary items that someone with PKU needs. You know, just as a diabetic requires insulin and it's widely understood. Okay, yes, they they need that. Well, we believe that that the same is true with PKU. Every every PKU expert acknowledges that medical formula is necessary. It is medically necessary, and it's not something that should be not denied through insurance. And that's what the bill hopes to change. I mean, it seems so basic that something medically necessary would be covered by medical insurance. Do you think the the fact that that's not always the case, do you think it relates to insurance just, of course, not wanting to spend as much? Or do you think there's just a lot of misunderstanding where maybe people at the insurance company don't understand that it is medically necessary and not some like optional nutritional supplement? I just, yeah, I prefer to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I believe that it's just, it really does get back to a lack of education, a lack of understanding because by nature, it's so rare that people have never heard of it. And so they don't understand, you know, why, uh, how essential it is. And, um, and then I think most people wouldn't even realize how expensive it is. You know, the, one of the statistics we shared in the video is that for an average, say male, who's 18 years old, I believe it was about $18,000 a year for their medical formula, which is cross prohibitive. Right. With all of the different uh, documentaries and fundraising videos and efforts you've done, what's the, what's the thing, and just also mentioning the fact that, you know, physicians often aren't gonna come across this in their career, nurses won't come across it in their career, or maybe just one time. What do you think would be helpful for medical professionals or just lay people also to know about PKU or maybe just newborn screening more general? Um, like something that's sort of like a realistic goal where there could be some level of, of understanding, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I always think of, um, you know, the average person may or may not 
ever have someone they're related to who is affected by PKU. Mm -hmm. But everyone in the United States is affected by newborn screening because every baby is tested. And so I always relate it back to newborn screening because when I advocate for PKU, I'm trying to advocate for, you know, change in the PK community so that, for instance, we can get the medicine that we need or whatever. But with newborn screening, it's different. To me, that's more of a public awareness campaign just to let everybody know that, hey, this exists and you need to know about it. And um, I would still say of, of all of the projects that I've worked on, the one that emotionally um, strikes me the most, there was a documentary that I produced uh, about five years ago called For Katie. And it is a, um, there is a family in uh, South Texas whose uh, child was born in Mexico at a time that newborn screening was not a requirement in Mexico. And the family did not know that it was essential. They didn't understand it because the, the, the hospital told them, you know, they were going to have to pay, you know, kind of going through the, the bills and they say, well, you can do this, or you can do this, and you can do this, and you can do this. You can screen for this, but you don't really have to because it's not that really important. And it never comes back you know, bad anyway. Mm -hmm. And so the family was like, well, if it's, you know, they, they were trusting the medical professionals to tell them what they thought was important. And, the, and they said, it's not really that important. So they chose not to have their child screened um, because they didn't, they didn't know. Right. And months went by and they recognized that there was a problem with their child, that she wasn't developing um, at the same marks that she could, that she should uh, hitting the same milestones. And uh, by the, she was, by the time she was 13 months, she was finally diagnosed with PKU and she has some profound intellectual disability. Um, and although saying that, you know, they, the family was told she's never going to walk mm. and she walks just fine. They said that she's never going to be able to communicate and she can communicate. She communicates in her own way, but she can communicate. And I, I, I made a trip down to, to visit the family and to produce this documentary and it just really profoundly impacted me because it, you know, on two respects, number one, I recognize that this could be me and my family could have been going through this simply because there's not an understanding of how important newborn screening is. But at the same time, it was very inspiring to see this family who hands down would do anything for their daughter and how they've been able to overcome their hardships and to give her the best life that she can, that yeah. she can have because she's, she is, um, she's overcoming. And is that documentary available somewhere online? Yes. Yeah, so we'll include a, if it's available online, we'll just definitely include a link in the show notes. What would you say to parents who have a child with an inherited metabolic condition or maybe just received a call saying that they have abnormal newborn screening results and they need to follow up, whether it's PKU or something else? Um, what would you say to those parents who are kind of starting to grapple with what that might mean? I would just say take it one step at a time uh, because receiving a diagnosis like this is life altering. And, um, you know, the, the common um, thing that I've seen in a lot of new parents is they're thinking about the future in big picture terms, whereas the best thing they can do is just take it one step at a time, day by day, and, um, and listen to their, to their medical professionals because they're going to be their, their best advocates. You know, um, while I, on one hand, I am a huge fan of, you know, being able for those families to get on Facebook or connect with other individuals um, and, and try to get some emotional and practical support. At the same time, you know, I've, I've had a lot of uh, parents with uh, children of PKU who've told me that the worst thing they did when they first found out the diagnosis is, is start searching for it on Google. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of while there's a lot of information that's while clinically accurate is not exactly helpful or beneficial 
for a parent of a new uh, of a child with PKU. The, the, the thing that a parent of uh, any child with a, a you know metabolic disorder needs to understand is, you know, it's going to be okay. There's treatment available. Here's what you need to do. But to just you know, in the case of PKU, come across an article that says PKU can cause uh, causes lifelong institutionalization, and then they bury the lead that says, but there's treatment available, and if they follow the treatment, everything will be fine. Right. That's why I think that looking for emotional and practical support is one thing and social media is great for that but the actual information about what this disorder is and how it can be treated that's the kind of thing that really people just need to listen to their doctors and their metabolic team and ha have that as their primary source of information right yeah and more so than most conditions i i think um you know it's one of those where it really the specifics like you were saying you have to check your blood there aren't like gen there aren't general recommendations kind of blanket recommendations that are going to work for every kid right it really does have to be individualized correct you know it's it's um that's why i per personally uh besides the fact that i'm not a medical professional <laughs> um i stay away from discussions that are really medical in nature but besides that you know Sometimes I'm not even the best person to talk with someone about more practical details because if I have a friend who is on uh, maybe eight grams of protein a day and somebody comes to me and says, hey, can you give me some practical advice? My child's on eight grams of protein a day. I'm going to say, no, you need to talk to this person over here because I've never been on eight grams of protein a day and I don't understand the practical challenges involved with that, but I can help them find someone else who, who is. And um, so I just think it's uh, it is PKU is um, is very individualized. It's very, um, you know, each case is very specific. And because of that reason, I think the best thing we can do is try to help people with practical things if we can. And if we can't just provide emotional support. Uh, great. Well, this has been a really great interview. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Are there any other topics that we haven't really covered that I should be asking you about? I would say that the best thing that's happened to me um, through my involvement in the PK community, and I've, you know, I've, I've received a lot of messages in the last seven years of people telling me, hey, I watched your video, it's been great, I really appreciate it. And every one of those messages means uh, just so much for me because, you know, as a creative professional, you do work and sometimes you wonder, is anybody going to see this? Is it going to mean anything to anybody? And anytime I hear, you know, I hear someone who say, I watched your video and it meant a lot to me or it helped me out, it really means a lot to me. But probably the most impactful thing that's happened to me personally is the friendships that I have developed um, through kind of being connected to the PK community. Um, I was fortunate um, years, uh, years ago to start going to the National PKU Alliance uh, conferences. And while I missed the one this year because I had a previously scheduled vacation, I've been to the, la the, the previous three ones in New Jersey and Salt Lake City and Indianapolis, I believe. And uh, through going to those, I met, a, you know, met some other adults with PKU. And uh, a few years ago, uh, four of us kind of got together at one of the conferences and just started hanging out. And we're like brothers now. They're just they're, um, Every time we're at a PKU conference, we always look for each other. We always hang out together. And you know, it's, um, it's just nice to know that you're not alone when you have something like this because it's very, it's very, very isolating. Um, when, when you don't have a support system in your local community where you can go and hang out and talk to someone face to face just to know that you can go to these conferences you can meet people and develop lifelong friendships it just means the world if you'd like to share your story send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com gray genetics provides genetic counseling services throughout the u.s and the world 
through a growing network of genetic counselors. To find a genetic counselor who specializes in your area of concern, visit graygenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.